0: Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Chatfeld to discuss her new book, In Her Own Name, The Politics of Women's Rights Before Suffrage, published by Columbia University Press in 2023. We often narrate the history of women's rights in the United States by focusing on the fight for suffrage. Yet starting as early as 1835, states expanded married women's economic rights. How were these statutes passed at a time when women's political power was severely constrained, including no right to vote in most states with limited national coordination? Dr. Sarah Chatfield argues that married women's property rights reform occurred through a two-level process within each state Policy developed and cycled through different state-level institutions, and without explicit coordination, these policies spread throughout the states with institutional actors borrowing, copying, and learning from the successes and failures of other states, such that all states passed some reform by 1920. Dr. Chatfield's important contribution to the American political development literature shows how male legislators pursued legislation that served their own interests and how state legislatures and courts interacted to create property reforms essential to changing economics, the project of permanently seizing land from Native people, and protecting slaveholding women and their families from economic instability. The reform of property rights included both property as commodity and also a means of social control and order. Dr. Chatfield's book furthers our understanding of how gender, federalism, and liberalism interacted in the development of state power. Dr. Sarah Chatfield is an assistant professor of political science at the University of Denver, where she teaches classes on American politics and law, her research interests, focus on American politics, especially American political development, gender and politics and methods. I am delighted to welcome her, a true listener of the podcast, to the podcast. Welcome, Sarah.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here and um, excited to have this conversation.
0: Uh, You thank a lot of Authors who have been on the podcast and some of them are on the back cover of your book, uh, endorsing it as a great book. So, uh, and I now endorse it as a, a, just a terrific read. I enjoyed it so much. Um, let's start with how you came to write about women's property laws in the in the first place. How did how did you come to this? Uh,
1: thank you so much um, for such nice comments about the book. And um, so this is a book that came out of my dissertation project, and um, I knew you were going to ask this question. So I was actually looking back at some of my very old um, files on my computer about from the start of my dissertation and learned I'd sort of forgotten that I um, had originally had this idea that I was going to talk about the role of courts across many policy areas, all of family law, all of labor law, I somehow had financial regulation in there, which I know nothing about. Um, And um, obviously that was probably about 10 books. Um, But um, I started um, reading about family law very broadly um, just to kind of see what I wanted to do with the dissertation project. And um, I started reading some stuff about married women's property rights and realized That was something I had never learned about in school, uh, even at the PhD level. Right, Um, it was something I was totally unfamiliar with. Um, There's a book by uh, Marilyn Salmon, "Women and the Law of Property in Early America." That's that book is actually about the period before I write about in the dissertation and then the book, um, looking at women's property rights in Colonial America, largely um, and sort of right after the founding. Um, But I was just so fascinated by this huge history of women's rights that I really had no knowledge of at all, Um, and that spurred me then um, to want to read and learn more. So that's kind of the origin story of discovering, wow, there's this whole history of women's rights that I really had never been on my radar, even as someone who was very interested in gender and law.
0: Um, what I love about your origin story is, well, I mean, we'll get to later why this book is so important, but in a lot of ways, you sort of understood that as a graduate student. So what you were approaching with those, you know, 10 different topics and 10 different books, and the understanding that you really could only do one, but it would tell you something about the wider picture. I, I think that's kind of, that's, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. Um, in order to understand why women's property laws are so important, uh, you know, your first chapter summarizes what property rights looked like before states changed their laws. And, and my students are always puzzled by coverture, uh, as it makes no sense to them that women wouldn't control their wages or their property that they brought into marriage. And and you do a terrific job of describing. Uh, what you call the chapter Life Under Coverture, and and how these legal reforms affected the everyday lives of people, but also economic, political, and social regimes that are depending upon that patriarchy. Um, So can you tell us just a little bit about what life looked like before any of these uh, reforms?
1: Yeah. So I think the important thing that I learned in Uh, doing research for this project, was that it wasn't just about property. It was this idea that once women got married, they sort of got this whole different legal status. Um, So they did lose control over their property, ownership of that um, went to their husband, but they also couldn't sign a legal contract. (laughs) Um, They couldn't appear in court under their own name. If they were going to appear in court, they had to be joined Um, by their husband. Um, And so it went beyond just, oh, can I own a plot of land Um, to this whole host of legal disabilities that really affected all aspects of their life. Um, And of course, along with that um, came all these other rights that women didn't have at that time. um, And specifically ones that they lost when they got married. So um, one example of this is that um, the husband gets to choose the domicile where you live, and they just get to decide that unilaterally. (laughs) And if you're the wife, legally, you're supposed to just follow along. And if your husband says, we're moving to Texas, then that's what you're doing. Um, And so it extends far beyond just owning physical pieces of property.
0: No, and I think you do a great uh, job in the chapter of sort of tracing coverture, which has such a long history in the common law of this idea that husbands cover their wives, and uh, and you show it both at the sort of the most abstract and also the, the, the most everyday. You can't write a will, for example, so you don't even have control after death uh, of property that could have been given to you by your family. Somebody marries somebody for their property and then takes control uh, of it, I thought that uh, part of the book was really, really well done, and uh, you know, uh, it, and it's funny—you're reading a lot of the same books that I've read for other works, and that uh, Salmon's book on on colonial women was another one. Where again, it wasn't exactly what I was doing, but I was also taken by it in the same way. So it's fun for me to sort of watch you using same sources for a very different uh, approach and methodology. So what happened? So this, this system had been in place, uh, not in England and in, um, uh, and in the colonies and then in the early Republic. So why is it that this system, which was holding together, as you say, so many different things, it, 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 it wasn't, it was family law. It was economic, it was political, all of these things tied together. So, so what happened? why? Why did anybody change this?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, and that's really the the puzzle behind the book of women couldn't vote to get a change here. They could organize, and they did sometimes, but they really were very politically powerless in many ways, um, right? And so, Ultimately, the answer I come to is male legislators had incentives to do this, and those varied pretty dramatically in different parts of the country, but this became a policy solution that they were kind of able to see as, oh, this could solve this problem that we're having in our state. Um, So, for example, um, a lot of southern states explicitly incorporated ownership of enslaved people into their Married Women's Property Acts. So... Obviously, then those laws are meant to benefit white women slave owners, um, and black women who are enslaved are the subject of those laws. Um, In other parts of the country, other things going on, Um, and I can talk about um, some of those different motivations, but ultimately what it comes down to is male state legislators and constitutional convention delegates for state constitutional conventions are seeing, hey, this is a solution that could solve... A variety of economic and social problems that we're encountering in our state. <sighs> So one of the
0: strengths of this book is that it doesn't rely on one case study, and uh, and and you address some of the methodological problems of looking at only one area, for example, the Northeast, or only the South, or only the West. And the book does all of it. Um, <clears throat> but before we go there into the into the breath, uh, let me just ask, because so many people have not read the book as they're listening to this, just. Give us an example of which state, like which state came first and w- what were they doing? And will we be surprised by which, which states are doing this first? And, and I should say that there were places in the United States, uh, in the colonies, pardon me, that, that did allow women to vote. I, I'm from the proud state of New Jersey. New Jersey had a tradition of women's suffrage that went away after the Constitution. So, so it's the the, the the colonies, the early republic, there's variation and you credit that throughout the book. But just to kind of get us all grounded, like what, what's one of the states that came first and what was going on there?
1: Yeah. So Mississippi is the first state to pass a married women's property law that lasts. Arkansas actually passes an earlier one as a territory, but it, it goes away a few years later when they um, become a state. Um, so Mississippi is the state I really focus on in the book since their their law is more enduring um, and what's interesting about this state, I think most people wouldn't imagine, oh, Mississippi is going to be at the forefront of granting new rights, um, for women. Uh, one of the things that happens there, um, is that, uh, the Chickasaw native tribe is in that state and there, um, a few years before they pass the law, there's a court case where, um, a native woman who owns an enslaved person is suing to say, hey, under my tribal law, I should be the owner of this enslaved person, not my husband. Um, So a lot of uh, complicated things going on with that case. Um, But um, a lot of historians kind of credit in Mississippi, oh, they got this idea um, from tribal law that maybe women can own property um, after marriage. And that could be a thing that actually could work to um, the advantage of slave holding families. Um, And the first law that Mississippi passes is really focused on debt relief. Um, So this is turbulent economic times, 1830s. um, And they kind of see that by allowing married women to retain ownership of property, especially enslaved people, four out of five of the clauses in this law deal explicitly with enslaved people. um, That by allowing that um, they can provide for some economic stability for slaveholding families. Um, because the way the law treats this is that the wife owns the enslaved person, but her husband owns um, any income made um, from the labor of those enslaved people. So for example, if they're hired out, um, the husband would own that income. So it's kind of this continuing revenue stream that can't be seized by the husband's creditors, um, but that allows that family um, to have ongoing economic stability. Um, So you can see how that's um, very much in the interests of um, state legislators in Mississippi to enact something like that, Um, but also is a motivation that's not necessarily going to translate to every state in the country.
0: No, thanks for that, and we'll get to the other areas and how you group them. It, you know, first, I I want to ask you: the book draws from previous work in history, particularly legal history, but also from economics. Um, and and I was wondering if you could just briefly, you do it so beautifully in the book, I, as everybody on the podcast knows. I hate literature reviews, and um, but some of them are brilliant, and this one is truly excellent because it's showing. <clears throat> Why these two fields have done what they've done, how they've done it. So just tell us a little bit about what the scholarship looks like in each. And then also, you're using uh, what we call American political development and political science, and nobody knows what that term really means. But um you know, APD hasn't paid a whole lot of attention to Married Women's Property Act. So so first start us off with what has been going on in these other disciplines that you're pulling from. And then like, let's weave our way to you explaining what APD is for our listeners, and also like how this is different, how this is different from either the historical or legal approach or the economic approach. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so I would say, when you look at the historical literature, a lot of it is very focused on here's the specific things that happened in one state or at least one region. Um, it's very rich. Um, you get a lot of the context of, here. you know, here's exactly the lawmakers that were voting a particular um, way for these reasons. And um, I think it's in- incredibly valuable for what's happening in individual states. But um, what I found was I wasn't always satisfied with the fact that um, these explanations didn't, translate from one geographic part of the country to another. And yet, we know that everywhere did this. Um, So it wasn't a case that, um, you know, only states with this particular set of characteristics passed these laws. Um, There's variation, of course, federalism, you're going to get that. Um, But every state is taking action on this issue. There's no state that's not at all active in this policy area. Um, And so there had to be some sort of way to think about what's going on at the national level. Um, And economic historians definitely are more focused um, on that national level. Um, You see a lot of um, more statistical modeling and um, saying, "Okay, we're going to look at what are the factors that can help us explain why this passed across at different times um, across all all the states um, and territories. And those explanations, I think, are also really interesting and important. But by the nature of the discipline, they're very focused on economic factors, um, which absolutely are crucial. Um, The economy is industrializing during this period. Um, There's a lot going on. Um, You're having economic panics very regularly. Um, So I certainly wouldn't discount economic explanations. Um, I just don't think they're the full story. Um, And I wanted to also bring in What's the politics side? Um, And um, you mentioned sort of taking an APD um, or American political development approach. um, And I will say, at um, conferences I've been to and just conversations, there's um, so much disagreement of exactly what this means. I tend to take a pretty broad view of we're talking about American political history. Some people would take a narrower view and say, um, you know, it has to be about very specific types of developmental processes. Um, But to me, it's about thinking about um, U.S. history, um, in particular, uh, the American part, (laughs) um, and thinking about how things develop over time with attention to political and institutional variables. Um, And so that's what I'm really trying to do here is to think about both what are the motivations of these male political actors who have the power to do something, why, why do they want to, But then also, how are those motivations channeled through state-level political institutions? Because they're not just acting in a vacuum and saying, I want this, it will be law. Um, They're working through uh, particular institutions. And so that's um, something I really wanted to try to capture in the book as well.
0: So one of the things I really found interesting about the book is how it is that you're on the one hand using APD to, uh, along with the economic and the historical research and, and showing how this case allows us to know something more generally about the development of state power. And I, I, I love how you lay out in the introduction the ways in which APD has both contributed but both not really looked at this case, a really important case, sort of hiding in plain sight. And, and you talk about how looking at this case uh, allows us to have a better understanding of the role of federalism and state institutions generally in the development of individual rights and state power. Uh, you also say that this is a really important example of the ways in which the state employs identity here, mostly race and gender, to build state power. Uh, And you also show how it is that the development of women's economic citizenship through the Married Property Women's Act shapes and constrains the boundaries of the wider developments. So I I just, I just love the respect that you have for your own discipline, other disciplines, and the way you take this case to us. And as the reader, I walk away with such a better understanding, not just of the specifics of this case, not that that wouldn't be an important enough reason to write a book. It would be, but for the wider understanding of how things operate in the United States, I I just loved this. Um, Okay. Uh, There are five basic areas in which these reforms are made. And, uh, and you have lots of charts and lots of information about uh, how uh, no one factor explains or predicts all five types. But you do think that thinking of the five areas is really helpful here. So just walk us through briefly what the what the five are.
1: Yeah, so um, there's a lot of different ways you could break down these laws, but I try to put them into these five categories. Um, So the first one is the one that I was talking about in the Mississippi um, early law. Um, So this is the creation of um, what uh, lawmakers call separate estates. So a set of separate property that a married woman can own, and it's going to be exempt from any debts that her husband accumulates. So this type of statute really is about debt relief. It's not giving married women much else beyond that. Um, And then later you start to see statutes that give married women control and management power over that separate property that they have. So now they can mortgage it. um, They um, can do other things with it beyond just owning it. (laughs) Um, uh, And then connected to that is another type of law that's focused on ownership of earnings and wages. Um, And it turns out that this has to be dealt with separately in the law, because wages had historically been seen um, as really in a different category than um, physical property, um, like a a piece of real estate, right? Um, And so initially, um, states really see this as earnings are about the labor that you do. If you're a married woman, your labor all belongs to your husband. Um, And so that has to be Um, put in a separate category in the laws as well. Um, And then related to um, earnings um, is sole trader laws. So these are laws that allow women to um, operate businesses and sign contracts independently. Um, And sole trader laws themselves um, as a category actually go way back. Um, It was the case that even in colonial times, women could operate as sole traders, as independent business women in limited circumstances, like if their husband uh, disappeared and abandoned them, they might be able to do that. Um, but what we see in this later period is sole trader laws that allow any married woman to sign a contract, operate a business independently, and own the proper um, own the profits from that business. Um, and then the last category uh, you mentioned earlier um, is testamentary rights or wills, the ability to write a will, um, whatever separate property you own, be able to bequeath that to um, whoever you wish.
0: And you say this in the book. Thank you. That was brilliantly quickly done. It's hard to do. It's hard to explain those kind of I love the way you do the categories in the first place, but it's hard to explain them. And, and, And you say that, look, there was really creative work done by women under these laws to evade them. So there were all sorts of ways in which people did, in fact, control their wages or their property or marry somebody who they really weren't married to in order to then create a sham uh, and run their own business. So it's not that there was no uh, autonomy or that women didn't find their ways around. But overall, these were huge constraints on women's ability to, to operate, especially when their husbands owned Owned their labor, you know, out outright. Um, and even in the case that you were talking about about debt relief, it's fascinating that really giving the the human property, so called, to the wife is really just a way to protect the family from uh, uh, from bankruptcy or from the debt, you know, the the debt collector. So it's it's not that she's actually controlling and uh, controlling the property. Okay. Um you have sorry, did you want to say something? Okay. Okay. So, uh sorry about that. So, chapters 3 and 4 look at the reform of married women's economic rights in the state legislatures and the state constitutional conventions. And and these are based on case studies and you you have them arranged in um uh, geographic areas uh, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Florida for the South, New York and Ohio for the East Middle Atlantic, and then California, Nevada, and Colorado. I hope I'm getting that right. And so tell us a little bit about each one of these. Like, what we'll start with Mississippi, South Carolina, Florida. Like, you've already said some about that. I don't know if there's anything you want to add. If not, we can just go on to New York and Ohio.
1: Yeah. So um, I guess what I'll say is something that's interesting about the South is you have states like Mississippi that not only passed the first law, but Mississippi actually over time expanded their married women's economic rights dramatically um, so that by the 1880s, you had newspapers saying they have the most progressive law in the nation. It's not just debt relief anymore. Obviously, by 1880, enslaved human property is not part of the law, Um, Instead, you have um, a statute that's really saying married women don't have any disabilities from Coverture with regard to their property um, any longer. Um, And you can compare that to other states in the South, like Florida um, is an example of a state that was an extreme laggard, Um, although they passed a debt relief law early they actually did not pass a control and management statute. So the type of law that's actually giving married women control over their property until after the 19th amendment in the 1940s. Um, So the South is kind of this um, exercise in extremes um, in terms of what's going on there. Um, And then in the Northeast um, and Midwest, um, I think one of the big things you see there is that there is a lot more involvement from women themselves because there are more active Feminist movements, suffrage movements, women are doing um, a lot more of the organizing themselves in these areas. Um, And I think that does help explain some of the earlier laws um, or the earlier passage of laws um, in the Northeast, um, especially of the type of laws that granted more to women that weren't just the family debt relief, but that were doing more um, to actually grant um, power to women. So New York is an example of this Um, where um, they were um, one of the earlier states to um, actually allow women to do things (laughs) with their property um, and to have earnings. Um, And it's still definitely, um, you can see the impact of the male legislators and convention delegates in that state, but you can also more so in that state see, all right, here's where women are actively organizing as well. Um, And so there, I think um, you do see in the timing um, more of an impact of that sort of movement based, um, story. Um, and then in the West, it's interesting because it's not that, um, you don't have a women's movement because it's sort of a, a culture of not wanting to grant women women's rights, but often it's just women don't exist there during this time, um, on the frontier. Um, it's, a heavily male-dominated society because it's heavily male in terms of population. Um, There's an interesting um, quote from um, one of the early governors of Colorado saying, we've never tried a society like this. Like, how do you do a society that's so predominantly male? And how do we, Um, and you see um, convention delegates and um, lawmakers actively talking about how do we get women here? How do we attract them to come to our part of the country, um, because we can't function just as a male society. Um, And of course, a big piece of that is um, the settlement of the West, uh, the dispossession of native lands, and the idea among both national and state political leaders that you can't have um, a settler society and you can't have this project of taking native land only with male settlers. You need families. Uh, women and mothers in particular are seen as the civilizing force um, of they're going to be the ones that will um, actually make the settlement of the West sustainable. Um, And so that's then obviously a very different motivation than what you see um, in other parts of the country.
0: And I'll just note that that the air quotes that uh, Sarah was using uh, around civilized uh, didn't didn't show up in the in the in the radio version of uh, the the audio version of this. so uh, and 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 it's interesting because you know suffrage we see very early uh, suffrage in some western states to create an incentive for women to come to the states to make them more uh, uh, a desirable so do we see that too Was any of this a way of saying like okay you could come out here and you would have more control is that is that one of the motivations
1: yeah so there's an interesting um california constitutional convention delegate who um i'm not looking at the exact quote but says something along the lines of this is the best measure we could pass to get wives if you're already married maybe you don't care but i'm single i don't want to be single forever <laughs> Uh, This is our way to do it. Um, And so, yes, you absolutely um, do see this as sort of being explicitly talked about um, as um, we need to compete with other parts of the West and um, and with the East and trying to get um, get women to be willing to move out to the West. Um, And another factor that's part of that is that um, some of the Western states, California in particular, had been under Spanish law. Um, prior to statehood um, at at, at some part of their history. Um, And under that um, branch of law, so coverture falls under the common law, which comes from England. Um, Spain has a different system, uh, civil law, um, which um, in terms of practice, um, married women still had a lot of problems with having rights under that, Um, but it was somewhat more forgiving in terms of the letter of the law um, in terms of property ownership. Um, and so those places that, um, had a history of civil law, um, so either, um, Spanish control or French control in Louisiana, um, do have a little bit of a different path. And they talk about, um, for example, in California, when, when they become a state, um, they adopt the common law generally as part of statehood, but they say, well, we're going to have to carve out an exception here. We can't just sort of impose coverture on all the women in the state who, for their whole lives have been living under the expectations of a civil law approach to um, marital property.
0: So so, so far, uh, and you're very, very clear about this in the book, most of these reforms really affected white women and their ability to own their wages, to control the distribution of their property through wills, et cetera, and in the South and elsewhere to own human property. Did the reforms have an effect on black americans? did Did they expand rights for black women uh, anywhere in the uh, in the the states or and territories?
1: Yeah, so other than the laws that explicitly deal with slavery, um, <clears throat> these laws are not race specific in terms of specifying only white women can benefit. Um, <clears throat> obviously, there's Implications of that if you have a law dealing with enslaved human property. But um, the the laws themselves are race neutral. But what I argue in the book is that the impacts of the laws aren't race neutral. So certainly, if um, a black woman has a huge amount of property in 1890, let's say, and gets married, that's going to benefit her. But when we think about what the property distribution looked like, um, and also what property law around the country was doing much more broadly than married women's economic rights. Um, enacting laws that protect, um, people who have property is largely benefiting white women and white families just because of the distribution of property that exists. Um, and in particular, um, And um, this is an important point that comes from um, a forthcoming book from uh, Chloe Thurston and Emily Zakin. When you have a law that protects um, land of debtors, right, that's sort of locking in the ownership structure that exists at a particular moment in time and not potentially freeing up land or real estate to be sold to other people. (laughs) Um, And there's obviously reasons to want to have laws like that. Um, But a consequence of it is that if you start with an unequal distribution of property, you're going to perpetuate that over time. And in the U.S. in particular, that's going to have racial implications.
0: Now, that's uh, very, very helpful. Uh, Before we leave these chapters, because they're really, really rich chapters in terms of how you... uh, create these uh, descriptions of the the three geographic areas. Do you you want to say a little bit about the methods that you use and the kind of data that you're pulling from to create these amazing charts that show us the differences among these areas and the states within those areas?
1: Yeah. So one thing I realized with studying the 1800s is, uh, it's a lot harder to get data than it is studying modern periods. Um, And so really what I'm trying to do is see what are the different pieces of evidence that I can bring together. And there's not going to be one statistical test that is just going to explain it all and tell me, oh, here's a clean causal inference. Um, that's my story, um, but really, it's about bringing together lots of different pieces of things. Um, so, one of the things that I did as part of this project was to collect um, the text of the statutes for each of these five um, categories that I talked about earlier. Um, that was quite a detective project of looking through old statute books and sometimes emailing state libraries and being like, "Help, <laughs> uh, what is this?" Um, and uh, got to correspond with some wonderful librarians who uh, were very helpful. Um, <clears throat> so that was one piece was actually figuring out what is the text of these statutes? Um, what do, what do those statutes look like? And then based on that, you can kind of see where our state's borrowing from because they basically may have copied hold, wholesale um, a law from one place to another. Um, and then of course, I'm also using uh um, <clears throat> constitutional convention, um, compiled uh, debates, uh, newspaper articles, um, state legislative materials, um, so <clears throat> the documents um, from their legislative journals, uh, just to kind of see what, beyond the, what language actually got put into the statute, how were people talking about this? Um, so um, in those chapters, that's really the main, main sources of data that I'm looking at it's
0: very rich and i i really loved the part about the way the states are plagiarizing from each other they're just they're almost treating the other states uh law as a model law and just taking the paragraph from it and not changing e- even a word and then just putting it into their own the, these chapters on how it's done are, uh come before another chapter which is about reform language, about how that language is spreading through, uh, and there you're using a different tool, event history analysis. So, say a little bit about how this reform language did spread throughout the states and why you're using this very different tool to, to analyze that language.
1: Yeah. So um, I actually use, um, it's a tool for detecting plagiarism. <laughs> um, so you might use it to see, oh, was this paper plagiarized from another paper? Um but I'm using it um, and I wouldn't really consider it plagiarism, but, you know, copying, borrowing um, from other states in both constitutional language um, and statutory language um, just to see where are you seeing particular phrases, whole paragraphs, sometimes whole statutes um, or whole constitutional provisions just copied um, from one to another and um, And this was not at all unique to married women's property legislation. Um, So, for example, um, state convention delegates would get these these pamphlets that had um, sort of all the other state constitutions and they can look through and say, oh, this sounds good or this doesn't sound good. Um, And you do see um, in these conventions active um, debate about well, California tried this, that was a horrible failure. We're not gonna do that. Um, That didn't work out well for them. Or all these other states are doing this. We really need to get on the bandwagon um, and make this happen. Um, And so we know that both convention delegates and lawmakers on many policy areas were actively looking around the nation and trying to figure out what do we do um, to sort of get the good things from other states and avoid their mistakes. Um, and that's true in this this policy area as well that they're engaging in that process. Um, and they have the resources available to do that.
0: So once these laws are made, uh, you you also focus on this interaction between the state legislatures and the courts. And you say that uh, you know these laws come to the courts. And on the one hand, they're interpreting them really narrowly, which you might assume means like, oh, that's going to lead to a very conservative outcome. But you actually show the opposite. Then in a lot of ways, those narrow reactions by the state courts was a catalyst for popular pressure that, you know, pushed the legislature to simplify the law or to grant more expansive rights. Can you say just a little bit more about like this? incredible interaction between those two different state institutions.
1: Yeah. So um, one of the things you see, especially in legal history scholarship, is this um, idea that courts were sort of narrowing and constraining this really liberatory potential of married women's property rights. And personally, that's not my reading of the situation. Um, Absolutely, court rulings were not maximally expansive and like let's give women all the rights but I don't really think that was the goal of the legislators that passed these laws um they were very ambivalent about how to grant married women enough rights to achieve their goals be that debt relief or supporting slave owning families or attracting women to their area um or whatever whatever their different goals were um, Another big one um, was actually um, supporting women with drunk husbands. So as part of the temperance movement, so how do we how do we um, achieve that without disrupting the marriage relationship and just totally destroying the hierarchical uh, nature of man and wife? Um, And they didn't want to do that. Um, You see lots of language around um, the purpose of this law is not to empower women, but to protect women. Um, To ensure that, for example, um, if she has that drunken husband who's going to go and spend all of her money on liquor, um, well, she should be able to keep her wages, right, Um, so that she can care for her children and not fall back on the state. Um, That's about protecting her, not about, uh, you know, women's lib, right? Um, And so they're very ambivalent and courts interpret it in that way, right, of trying to balance um, empowering elements of the law with protective Elements um, And ensuring, for example, that maybe um, like there's one law in Mississippi that allows women to purchase uh, clothing and education expenses for her children, um, but not to engage in land speculation, because that would be uh, too risky, too manly, that would put women in a bad position. <laughs> Um you no know, and we yeah, and we didn't talk we didn't talk
0: about it earlier but you know part of coverture's assumption is that there is a head of household and it is the husband and the husband has certain rights rights of sexual access like not just economic rights and and what you describe throughout the book is this kind of delicate dance that's being done on the one hand to preserve that patriarchy that the man makes these decisions with the practical uh, uh, situation, which is that not all men are good stewards of money for a family. Not all of them are responsible breadwinners. And so the state is trying to stop one thing while holding on to the other. And I I really think the book just, just does a great job of going back and forth with that. just it's, it's, it really gave me such a uh, I feel like I know quite a bit about this. And I walked away feeling like, wow, my, my, my view of this has changed, expanded. I've got a million great examples for the next thing that I write or class that I teach. Um, and I should say that this is a book that people should be looking at for their research, especially legal scholars. Actually, you have a huge overlap with certain kinds of legal scholarship that they should be reading. You, as you are reading them, uh, it's also assignable to graduate students, but definitely for undergraduates. I'm going to assign the chapter on coverture for sure. So this is a very readable book for anybody who's not APD. You can read this, and um, and it's and it's beautifully written and accessibly written. Thank you. You write you're welcome. No, it's I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. You, you write in the book that this study shows how quote rights reforms can spread among the states when national control coordination or control is absent. And then you also write that you know understanding both the extent and the constraints of democratization is really crucial for understanding women's place in the US democracy. And and this is maybe an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I love this book so much, is do you think this kind of rights reform spreading among the states could happen today? Would it happen in the same way? Um, does this tell us something about the potential for states being the laboratories of democracy and exporting these ideas, or are we living in a, in a, a different world?
1: Yeah. So I, I would say one of the big differences when you would look at the modern period is that parties are so nationalized and polarized. <laughs> um, and it's, I think it's harder for me to imagine this particular pattern of policy borrowing where not only was it a state-level policy that Congress wasn't working on, um, but you also, you occasionally had national parties in their platforms, including allusions to this, um, but it really wasn't something they were active on. Um, And we see at the state level, Democratic um, state legislators and governors, Republican state legislators and governors um, working on this issue. It um, highly polarized in the way we think of politics today so I, I think the national party's piece is one that would um, really influence this type of policy adoption in the in the modern context but um, I do think a piece of this that is important to think about in a modern context um, is this sort of combination of reforms that empower but also disempower different members of a group that's the target of the law um, and I was um, really um, inspired in thinking about this um, by David Bateman's book um, on um, enfranchisement and disenfranchisement in the early Republic and colonial periods, um, where he talks about in his book, um, he's talking about expansions of the suffrage that come paired with um, disenfranchising reforms. Um, I'm not talking about suffrage here, but um, I think you absolutely see here that in core in the DNA of these laws are expansions of rights for married women that come with, um, constrictions on other oppressed people, including women, um, of other, other groups. So, um, that could be enslaved women. It could be, as you're trying to get white women and white families to move West, um, uh, you have, uh, the stripping of lands from native people, including native women. Um, and so it's much more complex than just, oh, we have new rights here. It's about how are potentially rights granting reforms also really constricting rights for different groups? And what does that say about who the state thinks the law is for? Um, Who are they thinking about when they're passing laws as the citizen that they're aiming to help?
0: Yeah, and I love how you just took this head on in the book. I mean, you said that you found doing the study depressing, that it shows uh, not a lot of agency for women and reform that's done. But the reform that's done to remove agency from Black Americans and from Native peoples, and in you know in in the using women's uh, these reforms as a, a a way of getting at other things that are, are 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 not to be celebrated. Okay, this might be a comment, maybe it's a question. But as I was reading the book, when I by the time I got to the end, I just couldn't help but wonder the impact it would have on the project of originalism since uh, these changes begin in the 1830s, but they're not complete by the 1920s. And, and I, 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 I always have in my ear uh, Justice O'Connor, who uh, passed away not so long before we're recording this podcast, uh, her, her moment in Casey in which she doesn't use the word coverture, but she says, we're done, like coverture is done, and husbands do not control whether uh, uh, their wives, quote unquote, around there, uh, can have access to an abortion. And she you know, sort of has a moment that we rarely see in the court, in which she says the court was simply wrong about, about women's agency to choose professions or to do these things in the economy. Uh, but we're now living in a very different world than Justice O'Connor, you know, gave us on the court. And there's so much more interest in, well, what was happening in 1791 and what was happening in 1868 as these two goalposts. Your book really complicates it. And and I can think of so many ways in which this uh, would impact any sort of... Anyway, that's a comment. It's not really a question. And you can either respond, or if there's anything else that we haven't covered that you really f- found important in the writing of the book, I, I want to give you some time to talk about it.
1: Uh, thank you. Um, I mean, I guess what I'll say to the comment is I totally agree. <laughs> um, I think, um, it is very troubling to try to look back to the founding period as whatever rights people have then is the rights they should have now. And, um, just thinking about all the things that have changed and, um, none of none of what I'm talking about in the book is a federal constitutional level change. So if you're interpreting the federal Constitution to understand rights, it's not going to capture any of this. But of course, it's enormously important to understanding uh, the development of women's rights. Um, and um, yeah, so I, I think it is um, definitely very relevant to to thinking about those issues.
0: And is there something we haven't covered that was really important to you in writing the book and, and maybe end with, do you have a next project that you're willing to talk about?
1: So I guess the, the other thing I will add is um, the second piece of the court story. <laughs> um, so I talked a little bit about how courts are um, interpreting these statutes that uh, legislators themselves are um, a little bit ambivalent about how much to empower women. Um, but what you see is that when they interpret those uh, laws in narrow ways, you end up with almost absurd results. Um, There's an amazing um, case from 1874 um, in which a creditor had had a married woman sign a loan document promising that she would use this loan money for specific purposes that were allowed under the law. And ultimately the court says, no, You don't have to prove that she signed a contract saying she'd use the money for those reasons. You have to prove she actually did use the money for those reasons. So I guess be permanently surveilling her. Um, And um, so you get sort of these absurd results. You get a lot of talk um, among convention delegates and in newspapers about this is just so confusing. No one can understand how to apply these laws. um, And that then um, spurs legislators to liberalize them further. Um, So I think that's um, the important kind of second piece of the court story of um, they're making these narrow interpretations, but then that causes a reaction from the legislators when they realize, "Ooh, our our attempt to kind of do a balancing act didn't really work well. (laughs) Um, So I'll add that. And then um, Next project, um, I have a couple of things. Um, A colleague of mine, Elena Wolflink, and I are working on um, a sort of more political theory focused extension of some of these ideas around married women property. Um, She's a political theorist and has written a fantastic book on um, understanding how we assign value and how people claim value. And so we're looking um, in more detail um, at some of these cases from the U.S. as well as from Britain um, around... um, how these cases look at the value of married women um, as cre- as, um, as people who uh, might be able to take out credit and also the value of their labor. Um, and really trying to think about um, how some of these concepts, um, although legally they're not still with us, <laughs> um, these ideas around unpaid labor and uncompensated labor are certainly still with us today. Um, so that's one project I'm looking at. Um, and then um, another one is... Um, still looking at state legislatures, but in the modern period, um, looking at laws around bathrooms. Um, So um, around gender, gender identity and disability, um, different state laws that impact access to bathrooms and how looking at these laws can actually help us understand um, citizenship. So that's a second project that I'm working on right now. Well,
0: they both sound fantastic. And if they become books, we'd love to have you back. Um, Thank you so much for joining the podcast. I've been talking to Sarah Chatfield and her book is In Her Own Name, The Politics of Women's Rights Before Suffrage, published by Columbia University Press in 2023. Sarah, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it.